0: Welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I'm Raj Persaud, and in this edition, I'll be interviewing authors of papers in November's issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry, who are conducting cutting-edge research in psychiatry and psychology. Later, we'll be talking to the lead investigators who've conducted intriguing research into questions as varied as, do we need psychiatric hospitals at all? Could even the most seriously psychiatrically disturbed people be nursed at home? can music therapy cure or treat schizophrenia? Some of the most stubborn symptoms show remarkable improvement. And what happens to the psychotic who receive no treatment at all? But first I'm talking to Professor Clive Adams. He is Chair of Adult Psychiatry at the University of Leeds and coordinating editor of the Cochrane Schizophrenia Group. He's published perhaps one of the most provocative papers in the November's issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry in the form of an editorial. And Clive, your general thesis is that people living in poorer countries around the world appear actually to be getting better pharmacological management
1: of their psychiatric disorders than people in the wealthy West. I think what uh, myself and my co-authors are trying to say is that There is an enormous paradox that goes on in the treatment of people with schizophrenia, at least where it comes to the pharmacological treatment. In the rich West, where we have enormous resources and capacity to pay for expensive treatments, we are nevertheless the focus of enormous uh, marketing efforts that can obscure fact uh, rather than clarify it and uh, leave us um, beguiled and bewildered as regards which treatment is best. In fact, some of that marketing uh, may actually direct us um, in the wrong direction. And paradoxically, those countries that may not readily afford some of those expensive treatments have the evidence from studies from years ago that are likely to be more complete than the evidence uh, uh, that is currently available on the newer treatments. So it sounds as if what
0: you're saying is it's sometimes difficult for us to work out as psychiatrists what are the best treatments to prescribe. We often have to take a long period of time. Research into the correct treatments takes a long period. And one of the phrases you use in your paper is that we have to wait for the dust to settle in terms of the marketing storm before we can get a sense of actually what are the best drugs
1: to prescribe. I think it may be impossible to decide um, in the early years of a new drug, we are beset with images of large letters of the alphabet straddling sunlit horizons of happy young people on roller skates on uh, awful images from art um, suggesting that if we give one of the new treatments people will become happy and peaceful and healthy Mm -hmm. Um, and of course there's an element of truth in that but what is often obscured and takes years to come to light anyway are the adverse effects that go along with these treatments and now um, in the light of more independent evidence and some evidence that has been compiled from the past we're beginning to see that the newer generation of treatments are also beset with an important and serious set of adverse effects. It's only after years of giving those in the more wealthy countries that some of those have come to light and uh, therein lies the paradox that the rich countries uh, produce the drugs uh, but also are the focus of the marketing of the drug You're kind of um
0: paying reference to the the large amount of money that's spent on drug company advertising. You seem to be arguing that psychiatrists and doctors in general are perhaps influenced in a very unhelpful way by drug company advertising. It costs a lot of money to bring a new drug to market and therefore the drug companies have to recoup that that big investment so they spend a small fortune in marketing and that seems to distort the way that we think about prescribing when a new drug comes to market.
1: I don't think the drug companies spend a small fortune. I think they spend a large fortune. Um, We have an enormous debt to the pharmaceutical industry. The vast majority of innovations in the care of um, mentally unwell people have come from the pharmaceutical industry. Of course, they have to recoup the enormous costs that go into development of drugs. Of course, they have to um, ensure that... Further research is undertaken and all this is enormously expensive but of course they oft also have to ensure that the shareholders are happy and hopefully in the midst of that um, people with schizophrenia and people depre- with depression are nevertheless assisted by the compounds they produce but it is not a, a simple relationship Um There is always, with the pharmaceutical industry, a degree of the profit motive. The audience for most of the pharmaceutical industry's evidence is not at all clinicians or recipients of care. It is the regulatory authorities. So we are beset from the start with evaluative studies, such as randomised controlled trials, that are... Uh, designed so rigorously as to distance ourselves considerably from the real world. So very unusual people with schizophrenia uh, go into them, are given rigid care regimens and have outcomes measured that um, uh, are difficult to interpret um, or impossible to interpret surely what we should have are more like what's been coming along in the last years, more like Katie and Cutlass and preceding that the Veterans Administration trial where you have recognizable people with schizophrenia entering these trials for drug regimens that are applicable uh, for outcomes that you'd be embarrassed not to record in your notes anyway. Some years ago, when we, the, uh, Cochrane first published the systematic review on olanzapine for schizophrenia, we got a, a nice invite from Indianapolis, as, um, somewhat worried by the presentation of the 42% dropout before eight weeks, inviting us to Indianapolis to make sure we were right. We, however, met some of the drug trialists and the marketing people um, in the south of England here and they were very frank and open and seemed very honest. And when we asked them how many questions they would have asked an individual in one of those trials, should they have stuck it all the way through, we estimated that it was maybe uh, something like 200,000, by the time you ask the rating scales over and over again. The researchers didn't know how many questions they had asked, but the questionnaire was 38 inches thick and when they were asked as to whether did they ask the person to be better, to be in trouble with their police, or the family think them to be better, they said no. Our job is to please the regulatory authorities, they said, and if we can, and there was a little pause while the word was thought of, if we can convince clinicians that this is clinically meaningful we will do so. I think especially in the rich countries We are prey to evidence of this sort accompanied by highly aggressive and efficient marketing. I think we have been beguiled for years. It's understandable that that happens with this onslaught of tailored and laundered information. Further to that, maybe uh, further story to illustrate that. I had the very pleasant company of a senior person in one of the drug companies a few years ago and was telling him about a little company I knew uh, in England that looked into small area statistics where postcodes were linked with census data. So it is not a coincidence that you have an advert for a large estate car at the end of the place that you live. It's actually worked out on average who lives there. This applies to England, it applies to Japan, it applies to Italy, Spain, right across Europe. He was very interested in that information and the phone rang in that little company uh, a week later in order to um, identify in a pilot study in England um, a particular antidepressant deficient areas in the United Kingdom. Where was that antidepressant selling well? What were the types of people that lived there? And where were there similar islands of people that were not uh, buying the medications so well, or at least their general practitioners. The marketing machine that we have to um, uh, manage in the West is very considerable, and to think we are not heavily influenced by that is, is, is a mixture of uh, arrogance and naivety.
0: Now, you're editor of the Cochrane Schizophrenia Group. What does that mean exactly?
1: Uh, The Cochrane Schizophrenia Group uh, was formed in 1994. Its job is to um, identify every randomised controlled trial ever undertaken for people with schizophrenia, to collect those and to assimilate those, disseminating them in the Cochrane Library, which is uh, free to anyone who cares to log on in the United Kingdom and certainly across many other countries of the world. Uh, within those reviews they are undertaken in a way that we hope is as systematic as possible. We hope it takes out opinion as much as possible and simply presents the data in, a, in an understandable way so that people can make their own mind up what the data actually mean. However, in doing that, we do have to see thousands of randomized controlled trials and are very familiar with the type of study that has been undertaken in schizophrenia. This group has something like 300 reviewers, I think, in 30 different countries of the world, and our job is to coordinate that effort, produce these reviews, and maintain them and disseminate them. And you're looking at randomized controlled trials of treatments for schizophrenia?
0: Yes. Yes. And you're trying to identify via the amass of all this huge amount of data, what the science indicates as being really the very best treatments
1: for schizophrenia. Yes, this is um, uh, this is nothing new. Lord Raleigh in 1884 um, said that uh, uh, if science consisted of nothing but the raw accumulation of facts, it would it would come to a standstill under the the burden of fact. Some of the old has to be kept and some of the new has to come in. But there needs to be some process by which that's um, clarified and presented, we hope, to the reader in a useful and open way. With all these massive numbers of trials that you're
0: collecting, Is it not possible that bias creeps in? Is it not possible, for example, and you you would get a sense of this, that um, a large number of these trials, perhaps a preponderance of them, are sponsored by drug companies, and therefore that influences uh, the results that one gets? And you already mentioned another bias, which is that uh, regulatory authorities require certain kinds of trials to be conducted, and that influences the way the trial is done.
1: There are many types of bias. What systematic reviews do is they attempt to put the best available evidence uh, together in a reproducible way. Now finding that evidence is where biases can begin to creep in. If I simply search uh, a database such as Medline or hand-search the British Journal of Psychiatry, it's unlikely I will get a representative sample of um, the relevant material Some years ago, we uh, had the pleasure of manually searching Archives of General Psychiatry from 1952 to the present day, identified every single trial therein, and every single one seemed to be positive. Nothing doesn't work if it's published in Archives of General Psychiatry until that time. It's likely that there's some publication bias going in there. Negative results are harder to find. The negative effects are absolutely crucial to find they tend to be published in uh, the less high-profile journals. Higher-profile journals, such as the British Journal of Psychiatry, tend to go for positive effects. So we have to make enormous efforts and do in order to find trials published in lesser-known journals from lesser-known researchers. Uh, A nice study was done some years ago by Matthias Eger, a troubled Swiss man living now, I think, in Bristol, who looked at um, uh, medical journals that, uh, in which a German-speaking trialist had published in their home language and then looked for other trials that these same authors had published in English and found that the quality didn't differ, but the results did. The, the English language, which is the language of science, tended to pick for itself the more significant findings. So the troubled Swiss and troubled Germans are reading their home literature, which might be a bit more gloomy than the material that you find in archives or JAMA or the BMJ. So when a doctor or even a member of the public uh, picks up a
0: edition of the British Medical Journal or the British Journal of Psychiatry and they see a trial being reported, in a way what they're not seeing is... Maybe more important in terms of the massive data or the massive trials that may have been done on the same subject. And it's very important to maybe get access to the Cochrane database to get a sense of what else is going on in the field before coming to a decision.
1: The Lancet took a very nice um, line on this about a year ago saying that should a trial be published in their journal, what should happen? is that the author should present the evidence that preceded the doing of their trial, the trial evidence, and then where that evidence sits in the totality of evidence. You don't have to look at the Cochrane reviews. I would suggest that a lot of the time they can be helpful. But um, if journal editors uh, asked for such um, a, a way of publishing evidence, I think that would help things. Clive, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.
0: Thank you very much, Clive Adams. Now, Clive has been reviewing randomized control trials to do with treatments with schizophrenia. And one of the things that he argues is that actually drug companies, their treatments don't work. Things happen to them. The share price collapses. The drug company gets taken over by another drug company. However, there are much worse outcomes for people who are flogging a treatment that isn't pharmaceutical like, for example, an alternative therapy or a psychotherapy. Clive argues, or people like Clive, that actually much worse things happen for those people because there's nowhere to go if their treatment doesn't work. Uh, if your drug doesn't work, your drug company gets co- taken over by another drug company and they continue producing the drug or they revise it in some way. We now come on to a randomized controlled trial for music therapy for inpatients with schizophrenia, conducted by uh, the lead, one of the lead investigators, was Mike Crawford, a reader in psychiatry at Imperial College London. Mike, do you agree with that assessment, that uh, randomized controlled trials for things that aren't
2: uh, pharmaceutical treatments, that people are more biased when they conduct those trials, because there's more to lose if the trial doesn't work? No, I, I don't agree with that statement. And I think few people would, because uh, at the heart of it, there isn't so much of a profit motive for examining the impact of psychological, adventure, uh, psychological interventions. Um, I think there is a great deal of enthusiasm and optimism and a kind of hope that psychotherapy can help people who experience mental distress. And the notion has a lot of kind of uh, sort of face validity, a lot of appeal. Um, but the reality is that um, interventions of complex interventions are um, often if not usually carried out by people who have not been involved in in their development, Uh, whereas a lot of drug company trials are are using personnel from that company.
0: Now, you're publishing a very interesting paper entitled Music Therapy for Inpatients with Schizophrenia, uh, an exploratory randomised controlled trial. How did you get interested in the idea of trialling whether music therapy would work for schizophrenia?
2: I think my interest started off more from the perspective of inpatient treatment uh, rather than anything else. I mean, for those psychiatrists who've worked in mental health for some time and remember uh, asylums, where there was an awful lot of activity and uh, a lot of arts therapies and occupational activities. And, of course, over recent years, the whole notion of inpatient care has changed quite a lot. And uh, increasingly, inpatient units are there to treat people on a compulsory basis for quite short admissions. Uh, and often uh, it's very difficult to try and develop a therapeutic environment within an inpatient unit. I and mean, that's, that's not just my observation, I think that's been backed up by reports by the Sainsbury Centre and others. And, and there have been quite a few concerns from the Mental Health Act Commission about what actually goes on wards. I mean, if you speak to patients about what goes on, some of them feel that they're there to take their medication. And once they've started taking it, that they're, they're out. Uh, in that environment, I think it's very challenging to do something which is therapeutic. Um, that's not to say that people aren't up to the challenge. And, and, and my experience of working locally was that art therapists are amongst those people who are most keen to get involved in trying to help people who are in the acute phase of psychosis. Um, so, working with some music and art therapists who are, who are very enthusiastic, I was keen to look at the literature to see what had been done. Uh, and when I looked at that, I found that the Research that had really been carried out to date was different for a couple of reasons, uh, one because that the patients were um, uh, usually on on long term wards and and the other thing is that music therapy in different parts of the world means different things uh, and what had generally been um, evaluated had been a, a more sort of listening to music and um, a, a, and quite different from the approach that music therapists in in Europe and USA take and, and what is that
3: approach that they take
2: well the the uh, approach that we uh, evaluated uh, is called um, co-improvisational music therapy, which is an attempt to uh, engage people in making music. Uh, So it's not a a verbal-based treatment, it's uh, it's to do with trying to encourage uh, patients to use musical instruments and to listen very attentively to what they do with those instruments and to try to meet their communication and meet them emotionally in musical terms. So it sounds a little bit
0: like one of the things you could be doing as well is kind of interpreting the kind of music that's created in terms of what it might
2: convey about the patient. In fact, less emphasis is is placed on the meaning of of the music and more emphasis is placed on on just trying to enrich the musical experience for the patient. And we're talking about a group of people with acute psychosis for whom communication is very difficult and verbal communication might be quite challenging. And it might be that they have um, uh, lots of examples in their mind of the, the, the difficulties of talking to people Music therapy provides a different kind of environment in which people who might be quite unwell will have an opportunity to try to engage in a way which can feel meaningful and rewarding, potentially.
0: My recollection of making music goes back to when I was 12 and I uh, uh, laboured under piano lessons and uh, I don't have a very positive memory of producing music. Is it not the case that actually a lot of people might be put off the idea of producing music? Might, might Might not be very musical?
2: Well, I'd, I'd say to um, people who are uh, listen to this podcast and who don't know what music therapy is, speak to your local music therapist, if you're lucky enough to have one, and go along there and try it out, as I did, and it it does it leaves you feeling exactly like that. It leaves you feeling totally unskilled and unable to do anything useful with, with the instruments. Uh, but actually, people can use a percussion instrument to make a rhythm. Uh, people can use a, 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 a glockenspiel or a piano to make, make a melody. Uh, and if you're in the hands of, a, of a, a, good art, a good music therapist, then they will have a way of listening to what you're doing and making that experience more meaningful. I think you really have to listen to recordings of interactions between patients and music therapists just to get a sense of, of how uh, complete, how kind of whole the, the, the combined sound of patients and therapists can be.
0: How did you get funding for this? Because, um, I mean, I, I agree with you that I've just come from a ward round in my own inpatient unit, and, and the, the ward environments of inpatient units is extremely impoverished.
2: But trying to enrich them is very difficult with, in, in the cash-strapped yeah. NHS that we work in. Well, we couldn't have done this trial unless the local mental health trust, CNW Mental Health Trust, had, had sort of made an investment in arts therapies within the wards there. That's Chelsea and Westminster. Uh, it's Central and Northwest London okay. Mental Health <laughs> okay. Trust. Uh, so so let's we'll say that again. So
0: it's Central and Northwest Mental Health Trust.
2: Central and Northwest London. Mental Health Trust and um, so so we have music therapists locally you you need to have a music therapist to do the study Um, but actually getting research funds to uh, evaluate complex and perhaps less traditional forms of intervention is is challenging and certainly more difficult than it is uh, to get money to do drug trials. Um, Nonetheless we were able to get a small grant to conduct a pilot study of music therapy uh, which meant that we only had limited numbers of patients but it was a good starting point. And what did you actually do in this study? Uh, What we did is we uh, went to four inpatient units in inner-city London and we spoke to people about the trial and tried to get them involved Uh, and when people expressed an interest in taking part we measured the mental health using normal baseline measures, the sorts of things which are used in in evaluations of drugs and uh, we randomized people to individual sessions of music therapy once a week for 45 minutes uh, up to 12 sessions over three months and we followed the patients up for three months and repeated the uh, outcome measures at the end of that time. What did you find? Well, I think the first thing that's really worth noting is that this was a group of people who hadn't been getting up to much on wards. We asked people what activities they got involved in over the last two weeks, and most people had done nothing. Uh, and, and amongst those people who had, they'd been involved in one group. Well, the first thing was that everyone who was randomised to music therapy took part in at least one session, and the median number of attendances was eight sessions over 12 weeks, which surprised us. In terms of the impact on mental health, our our primary outcome measure was score on the positive and negative symptom scale, which is one of the more robust measures of symptoms in, in, in people who have schizophrenia. And We also looked at things like satisfaction with care. The biggest differences we found at the end of treatment were those of symptoms of schizophrenia. And in particular, general symptoms of schizophrenia and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, the general symptoms of schizophrenia are symptoms to do with mood, anxiety, uh, and those sorts of things. Uh, and that was the area which we saw the greatest difference between those randomised to music compared to controlled treatment. And what did you find? Uh, we found a nine-point drop in PAN scores, nine-point improvement uh, it, it, amongst those people randomised to music therapy, and a three-point change uh, in, in those people who were offered treatment as usual. Uh, and univariate analysis suggested that that was a statistically significant finding. But this being a small study, when we conducted a multivariate analysis, uh, that trend was it was a positive trend, but no longer statistically significant.
0: What I found really fascinating about this paper was the improvement in negative symptoms because we all know that uh, pharmacological treatment is particularly, not particularly good, generally speaking, at helping with negative symptoms, either symptoms of withdrawal, apathy, uh, where people can look rather depressed. Uh, psychiatric drugs are much better where, with, with symptoms like people hearing voices, having active delusions. So I was really struck by this. What were your thoughts about the, the, the positive impact on negative symptoms of music therapy?
2: Well, you're right to note that. In fact, as it was, the general symptoms and the negative symptoms which showed most change, and you're right to say they're the ones which tend to be least affected by medicine. Mm. Interestingly also, when they've done studies asking people with schizophrenia what matters to them about their outcomes, they usually identify things to do with depression and negative symptoms rather than positive symptoms. I think there are quite a few people with schizophrenia who can cope with a certain degree of hallucinations, uh, but it's actually the kind of effect on mood and, and energy levels that really has an impact. Um, So that's where we found our greatest uh, difference. The question then is, what was it about music therapy which might have uh, uh, resulted in those changes? And I think that's uh, a point which requires further investigation. Uh, Essentially, we're not sure whether these are specific or non-specific effects. Uh, The music therapists involved in the study were uh, motivated and uh, energetic therapists who gave people their attention on a weekly basis over a 12-week period. And to what extent it was their energy and care and interest or the use of music therapy, we, we don't know. But, but interestingly, we, we conducted a small qualitative study in parallel to the trial. They, we, we didn't put the results of those in, into the, this, this paper. Uh, but we asked patients who had schizophrenia and had music therapy what they thought the effects were and why they thought it helped them. And essentially what they said was that it made them feel happy and it gave them a buzz. And uh, I think this would go back to the notion uh, that there is something in rewar- rewarding and enriching about having a positive experience of a relationship with someone at a time in your life where your symptoms might be making that quite difficult.
0: My experience of trying to introduce these kinds of innovations is that the very clients who would benefit most from them, i.e. the most withdrawn, apathetic, turned-off people, are the ones who won't turn up
2: to, to take part. Um, so isn't that one of the problems here? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd remind you that... Uh, everyone who was randomized to music therapy had a session of music therapy and the median number was 8 over over 12 weeks. Not only that, but um, uh, over half the patients who took part were being treated on a compulsory basis. And in a multi-ethnic area of London, over half the sample were from black and minority ethnic groups. So uh, we didn't look at profile symptom scores at the beginning to see if that had an impact on the number of sessions that people attended. But my impression is that uh, the vast majority of people took to music therapy. What do you think the implications should be for clinicians listening to this, or even
0: managers of mental health services listening to this?
2: Yeah, well, I think there has rightly been uh, a, 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 an increased interest in what it's like to be an inpatient on a ward, and there are lots of issues to do with patient safety and, and other factors which have recently been highlighted. But, but nonetheless, I think there is a, a message that comes from patients which says. You know, we are bored on wards and many feel they're just there to take their medication. I I think that um, it's important that we do more than that and it may be a good uh, place in which to introduce psychosocial interventions such as arts therapies. You know, whilst we can't say for sure that music therapy improves people's symptoms with acute schizophrenia, there is a suggestion that's what happens. But there's very clear evidence here that people in this acute setting are willing and able and interested in engaging in a meaningful psychological intervention.
0: But if I, as a clinician, am excited by your findings and I want to introduce music therapy on my ward, uh,
2: how do I go about doing it? I think that would be a little snip to them. You (laughs) Um, you need to find a music therapist, don't you? Okay, but
0: if I find one, if I find a music therapist, which Mm -hmm. is what you're suggesting I have to do, then I have to get the trust
2: to fund it, do I? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Okay. Uh, maybe I could answer that by saying that you know uh, that we didn't examine the economic aspects of this intervention. Uh, the interesting thing would be that if we were able to do a longer-term study with a large number of people, if there were cost benefits, that would clearly be important, because the idea might be that decreased use of inpatient resources might pay for the intervention. But we really know very little about whether or not these effects are sustained beyond the end of the treatment.
0: But what I'm driving at is, don't, don't you find that mental health services are very uncreative in the way they think, about what it is that
2: might help patients it tends to be rather a rather old fashioned very blinkered view my experience of working with uh... With senior managers and trusts is that they're only too well aware of what the problems are within in patient treatments, and they want to do something about it um, i think sometimes there is a um a, a little lack of imagination when it comes to people who are used to the kind of high pressured, very difficult environment that, that wards face with the high patient turnover uh a, a, you know large numbers of occupied beds it, it's difficult to find the space to think
0: so what's going to happen on, on the unit where the music therapy was occurring is it going to continue or is the trial over now and the music music therapists have packed up the violins and gone home no
2: music therapy is continuing on all the
0: wards mike crawford thank you very much indeed Now, joining me here at the uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists is Craig Morgan, a sociologist working at the Institute of Psychiatry. He's publishing a fascinating paper entitled Clinical and Social Determinants of Duration of Untreated Psychosis in the ESOP First Episode Psychosis Study. Now, Craig, one of the things that this paper is basically about is the fact that what's really peculiar about psychiatric illnesses in comparison to... Uh, most other medical disorders, is the length of time between the onset of the illness and actually people getting treatment. What's, what's, why is that so long so often, particularly in the realm of psychosis? That seems puzzling. Most people are psychotic, hear voices, they have bizarre ideas. Surely those people would go for treatment quite quickly.
4: Well, I think there's a variation in the length of time that it takes people with a psychotic mental illness to reach services. So for some people, the length of time is very long. Um, often in excess of two years, and in fact, in some cases, as long as up to 10 years. But for many patients, the duration is much less, and in fact, around about 75% of patients present within the first year of developing symptoms. So what's going on for the patients who seem to be psychotic
0: but actually don't seem to be getting help for many years.
4: I think we're we're still at the early stages of understanding why that is. There's been lots of interest recently in this concept of duration of untreated psychosis and the degree to which it does or doesn't influence subsequent outcomes. But we still know surprisingly little about why it is that people spend such long periods untreated in the community. And I guess this is one of the questions that this paper is attempting to address.
0: And one of the reasons why psychiatrists are very interested in this question is the notion that's been around, which is that if you have a long period of time uh, during the onset of the illness before you receive treatment, that seems to indicate a very bleak prognosis. It suggests you're going to do badly in the future.
4: Yes, I think there's now quite a sizable body of literature that suggests there is a basic association between the amount of time that it takes to get to to services following onset and subsequent outcomes one of the questions that this paper is concerned with is the the issue of whether in fact that period of time is truly associated with outcomes or whether in fact that relationship is confounded by other variables which are also associated with a long period of untreated psychosis and what might those other variables be those variables can be split really into two types I think they can be or three types even they can be split into clinical, variables, which might relate to diagnosis or to mode of onset, the, essentially the amount of time that it takes symptoms to develop following some behavioural change. It might be related to social variables, for example, family support networks or um, employment, for instance, or it might be related to pathways into care so that the routes by which people access services may serve to promote or hinder early help-seeking.
0: So let's take one of those. It could be, for example, that a a client who is very isolated, has few friends, no contact with a family, uh, because he's very isolated, no one picks up on the symptoms, and that's why he may go or she may go untreated for a long time. But it may be actually it's that lack of social support that explains why the prognosis is so
4: bleak for that particular individual. Precisely. So there has been research that suggested poor social networks prior to contact is associated with subsequent poor outcomes. So it may well be that it's that that's explaining the poor outcomes rather than the period of time in and of itself.
0: Now, what did your study actually find then?
4: Well, what we found is that the kinds of variables that you might hypothesise potentially confounding this relationship do in fact show quite strong relationships with duration of untreated psychosis. So, for example, we found that an insidious mode of onset, essentially the development of symptoms over a long period of time, the way that we operationalized it was in terms of over a, a month. If symptoms emerge insidiously, then the duration of untreated psychosis is substantially longer than it is for those who, whose symptoms develop more acutely. Um, in relation to social variables, we found that being unemployed, was associated with a longer period of untreated psychosis. And in relation to pathways into care, we found that the availability of family to help the person seek help was associated with a shorter duration of untreated psychosis. And the problem is that studies which have looked at duration of untreated psychosis and outcome have not yet fully taken account of these possible confounding variables. So what our data is really suggesting is that it's quite important to do this before we can really f- firmly say that there is a true association between these two variables.
0: Did you get any sense of what kind of people these are in terms of people who are out out there as it were uh, becoming more and more psychotic yet not receiving any help, not actually in contact with services?
4: It's very difficult to, to draw generalizations about who these people are but I think for example um, one one subject who developed symptoms um when they were around 16, 17. And the response of the family in that situation was very much to see what was happening in terms of bad behavior or in terms of a consequence of drug use, for example. And this led to a narrowing, a restricting of this person's social networks who then became isolated, um, lived in a flat by himself, and over a long period of time became increasingly isolated in his flat, not going out, having no social contacts, and spending this, what became it was a five ten years in this situation. And in fact, what then subsequently brought this person to contact with services was the state of his flat became such that uh, neighbours noticed st- uh, strong smells and, and and so on, and alerted services consequent on that. So I think it. it Here's, here's a case of someone who's had a fairly insidious onset, whose social networks have restricted quite markedly, who's been unemployed, and there's been no one around who's been in a position or willing to seek help from services for him.
0: You mentioned that the development uh, this person had symptoms that began around the age of 16. What were those symptoms that began around the age of 16?
4: In In this particular instance, this was hearing voices, and this led to certain behavioural consequences as well, so that in response to the voices, this person became fairly aggressive, um, and aggressive towards his family. But he didn't also disclose the voices. And so the family interpreted this as bad behavior, as antisocial behavior, and responded accordingly. And the person, because of a fear of stigma, kept this to himself. So this this is a person who's hearing voices, a very troubling symptom for several years,
0: without people who he's actually living with. Uh, being aware that they're experiencing this, this amazing symptom.
4: Yes, and and surprisingly that's not uncommon in our sample. And this was research done in, in London? The research was done in two centres, well two centres relevant to this paper. Um, it was done in south-east London, in the areas of Southwark and Lambeth, and in Nottingham as well.
0: Now, the... The moment in the study where you decide that someone is receiving treatment or the illness has become recognized is when they get admitted to hospital or when they make contact with a GP. Because this is quite important, isn't it, in terms of comparing research across the world on this important subject of duration of untreated psychosis?
4: It is important. And in our study, we defined the endpoint as contact with secondary psychiatric services. Um in Previous studies, there have been different endpoints that have been used. So, for example, some studies have used onset of psychiatric uh, antipsychotic treatment, and some studies have used the beginning of a certain dose of antipsychotic treatment. Some studies have used admission to hospital. Our using contact with secondary services means that we were able also to include people who were being treated in the community which meant that we didn't select our patients according to treatment decisions or severity, which hospital admission, for example, may indicate.
0: Now, um, I'm going to ask you a question which might be quite a tough question because I know there are a large number of people in the study, but do you recall what, what was the length of time that was the longest in, in the study in terms of someone being psychotic
4: and not receiving any treatment? The longest period is is 15 years. But when when we say 15 years, I think that has to be taken as indicating a broad time period. It's very difficult when it's that long to have a, a level of precision that dates it pr- to a particular point in time. Um, but the longest period that we categorized was, was for 15 years.
0: And this is someone who was psychotic during that 15 years? Yes. Now, I myself, uh, as a clinician, have seen have seen some people who've been untreated for two decades, actually. Right. Um, so, I mean, most clinicians will have an experience like that. Yes. Again, any sense of what marks out those people who've got extraordinarily long periods of time of being psychotic and not receiving any treatment?
4: It's very difficult to say. I mean, certainly what appears to characterize them is a lack of other people and social networks who are able to label those symptoms and able to seek help. I guess another facet of it is that these are people who have become so socially excluded and so socially isolated that there is no disruption to their ongoing social routine, that they've settled into a way of life which is very restricted and very isolated, living in a flat, for example, and venturing outside very rarely, perhaps, just to to buy food and to pick up benefit claims and so on and so on. Um, And people who really have still ongoing symptoms, but just don't have the people around them who are able to help them find help.
0: My experience has been, though, that sometimes one of the reasons why people don't receive treatment over a long period is an alternative account develops of why they have these symptoms. For example, some people say they're possessed by the devil, they come up with an alternative religious account. And that means because the symptoms aren't recognised as symptoms of a medical problem, they're kept away from services. Either they themselves do that or the people around them. Did you encounter that situation?
4: We we certainly encountered it, the situation where individuals themselves who were suffering um, would develop alternative accounts. And it becomes very difficult then to distinguish the account from delusional beliefs relating to to other symptoms, for example. We didn't have any examples of people who had spent that length of time, and yet who still had people around them who were supporting and to a degree labelling their symptoms differently and not seeing it in, in medical terms. Sorry, the question's eluded me. I was about to ask there. Um, oh, yeah. Um,
0: there is a, a movement, which actually is quite old, but is gathering, gathering momentum again, to suggest that actually contact with psychiatrists and psychiatric treatment and diagnosis is often not that helpful for psychotic patients. So you were examining a group of people who had a first onset, as it were, and hadn't received treatment over a long period. Did you encounter pe- people who you thought actually, in a way, it's better for them? Uh, they did better as a result of not receiving any help or making contact with psychiatric services?
4: It's it's very difficult to, to answer that because the people who ultimately get included in this study are people who have presented to services in some form. And Looking back from, from that vantage point, it's very difficult to see an alternative endpoint where they would have got well by themselves, for example. There are certainly a very small number of people in the study who, when you look back over the course of their illness, had experienced what looked like discrete episodes, which they'd developed and then had remitted um, without help. And then on the second, third, or fourth episode, then they ultimately made contact with psychiatric services. But it's difficult to, to see people who have made contact and say that actually they wouldn't have done better without it because in a certain sense they make contact because they need help.
0: Is this um, measure of how long it takes before someone develops a psychotic illness, and receives help, is that measure a good indicator, do you think, if we were to use it around the world, of, first of all, the general educational level of of the public in terms of understanding, uh, you know, when someone's developing a psychiatric illness, recognizing it, perhaps a measure of um, stigma, If the thing is stigmatized, people are more reluctant to go and get help or label it correctly, and also perhaps a measure of the efficiency and the effectiveness of psychiatric and and, uh, medical services. Would, Would you say that this is an important measure?
4: Well, certainly the development of services has, has gone along with, with the idea that if the duration of untreated psychosis is reduced, then that will promote better outcomes. And the steps that have been taken to, to promote earlier contact have been educational campaigns, for example, efforts to reduce stigma. I think these are empirical questions and I don't think that our study really really addresses that. I don't know whether duration of untreated psychosis is a measure of public attitudes or of stigma or whether it's in fact some kind of proxy measure for a different type of illness which is more insidious and, and more neurodevelopmental. But I think these, these are important questions if this variable is to, is to be understood and then, and then used in terms of implications for services.
0: Now, the study you, you keep referring it to as the ESOP study. Could you remind us again what ESOP stands for?
4: Yes, ESOP stands for the um, Etiology and Ethnicity in Schizophrenia and Other Psychoses, and it's initially set up. It was initially set up as a three-centre study in Bristol, Nottingham, and South East London, and it was primarily a study of all new cases of psychosis who came into contact with psychiatric services in those three catchment areas over a two-year period. And the initial focus of the study was really to look at the incidence of psychosis in different ethnic groups and to attempt to understand the reasons why there may be variations by ethnic group in the incidence of psychosis. We're still very much in the process of analysing the data that we collected from this cohort of people with the first episode of psychosis. But separate from that, we're also in the process of developing a follow-up study study which will be a follow-up study of all of the people who were included in the baseline study at what will now be a six- to ten-year follow-up period. Craig, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Now joining me
0: here at the Royal College of Psychiatrists is Giles Glover, a professor of public mental health at Durham University. is publishing a very interesting paper in November's uh, issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry. The title of the paper is Crisis Resolution, Stroke, Home Treatment Teams, and Psychiatric Admission Rates in England. Now, Giles, this issue of home treatment teams or crisis resolution teams is actually a very old idea. It's an idea that actually even people uh, suffering the most acute psychotic uh, relapse might actually not need to be admitted to psychiatric hospital and could be treated at home. Many people would find that a very strange idea.
3: This has been being done for 30 years now in one setting and another on this side of the Atlantic and the other. In fact, the things that you do to somebody when you admit them to a psychiatric hospital are a combination of uh, assessing how they are, looking after them to make sure they don't get into any harm themselves, and usually giving them some sorts of drug treatment. Now, there's no reason why all of those things can't be done at home, assuming that there's a reasonably supportive setting that can be put together with informal carers and professionals coming in and visiting uh, to supply whatever else is needed. It does depend on the professionals being able to be flexible. So it it's important that they be able to come and visit at a, pretty much at all hours of the day and night and that they be reasonably readily on hand.
0: What are the advantages
3: of, of home
0: treatment and home treatment teams as opposed to admitting someone to a psychiatric hospital?
3: Well... There's been quite a lot of research on this, which broadly shows that if you look at the outcomes in terms of the duration of uh, symptoms and in terms of the level to which people recover, it doesn't actually seem to make much difference at all. The one area where it really does make a difference is in what the patients think about it. And, And people who've had the experience of being looked after at home, as opposed to being looked after in hospital, find it very, very much better. I think there's also some anecdotal evidence that in a number of situations, uh, informal carers like the idea of looking after their relatives themselves. But I think it's important to remember that uh, the experience of going into hospital is, in many cases, for many people, very traumatic. It seems to me to be no accident that quite a lot of people uh, go into hospital and leave the same day. Uh, some people go into hospital, decide they want to leave, and are then compulsorily detained. And uh, it's because acute inpatient wards are not very really nice places to be in a lot of places. So there's very much an idea around that actually it's a good thing to try and avoid hospital admissions
0: and try to find other ways of delivering care, even to people who are in the grip of of a, a very acute, very serious psychotic breakdown, for example.
3: Where it can be done safely and where it can be done in ways that are reasonable, then I'm sure that's right, yes.
0: And what does the previous research, before we come along and talk about your paper, the current research, what's the previous research indicated about the impact of implementing home treatment or crisis resolution?
3: Well, all the studies that had been done before were studies of an individual team. And broadly, what they'd identified was that if you set up an experimental team, then you can make quite a substantial impact uh, on the numbers of admissions. Um, exactly what the scale of that impact is, is a little bit harder to make sense of for two reasons. Um, firstly, uh, there's a general problem, I think, with uh, pioneering studies in that the people who set them up are always going to be uh, unusual individuals who are particularly committed to the idea. Uh, they're always generally going to be people who are particularly good at getting resources for their team because that's why they got to setting up a, an innovative team. And so there's always going to be some suspicion that the pioneers are likely to be more successful at reducing admissions or achieving whatever's the goal they're trying to achieve than the average run of the mill uh people following on in their wake. Um the, the the second type of uh problem with the uh with the scale of bed reductions and admission reductions that have been described by some of the early pioneers is the question of the backdrop. Um, in what context were they doing it? And broadly speaking, many of those studies are really quite old. I mean, the ones that are widely quoted relate to work done in the 1980s. And I, I think there's, people's view is that, that, that uh, uh, the ordinary community mental health teams have got much better at dealing with complex crisis situations at home, and a lot of the principles learnt from crisis resolution teams have sort of permeated the generality of of care, so that there's some contention about whether they would still be effective against the modern backdrop. Having said that, um, the the study that was published in the BMJ uh, earlier this year by by Sonia Johnson and her colleagues uh, indicates that you can still see very similar results from uh, a, a single crisis team if, if you do uh, a carefully controlled, randomized controlled trial. Could you describe for us,
0: for people who may not be aware of it, what actually a home treatment team is? What is it constituted of? How would it
3: work? Well, it'll usually be about 10 or 15 nurses uh, with uh, one or more doctors attached, either whole or part-time, um, commonly with a social worker attached, commonly with a psych, or well, relatively uncommonly actually, but ideally, desirably, with a social worker attached. And... The principle which is when anybody feels that somebody needs to be admitted to hospital, then rather than send them up to the hospital or ring up the junior doctor, which was was when I was training in psychiatry a lot of years ago, they would ring up the crisis team and the crisis team would come around and do an emergency assessment, usually within an hour or two, and would, would assess whether or not they felt it was realistically possible to manage the crisis by a package of care which they could put into the person's home immediately. If the person did need to go into hospital, the crisis team wouldn't give up at that point. They would be watching to see whether or not an early discharge might be possible. And quite often when somebody's been uh, admitted briefly, the situation will calm down in the space of perhaps a day or two. And it might be possible to discharge somebody with an intensive care package put in uh, for the first few days and weeks after they leave hospital, uh, which the crisis team might also do. You keep referring to a
0: thing called a care package. I mean, what that boils down to is someone visiting you a lot, doesn't it, and offering treatment in, in the form of um, medication or, or psychotherapy.
3: Well, I, I, I think it's a question of finding out what the things that people are worried about are and trying to address each one of those bits. And the reason I call it a package is because it isn't going to be the same for any two people. It isn't like there is a predictable set of things that everybody needs that if you like it's then you know, it's the same design for everybody. It will be distinct for everybody. So, you know, it might be that what's essential is is to have somebody to see that the children are going to be okay or, or that they're able to go to, to be taken to school. Or it might be that, that you know, th- things are, uh, it, that there, there are very specific periods of time that somebody's worried about. Or it might be that they get particularly anxious in the night. Or there, there are particular times and, and different things that will need to be put together. It's about tailoring the sort of care to the specific needs that individuals have.
0: Well, there's obviously an argument in favor of home treatment or crisis resolution in terms of possible clinical advantages to the patient, but um, many clinicians are suspicious that the great drive to implement home treatment is that fundamentally there's an economic agenda because you don't have to have a building if you don't have a hospital. You don't have to provide uh, food services, catering services, and 24-hour nursing care so that it's cheaper care than a hospital. Um And what has been the previous research indicated about that? Is it cheaper care than a hospital?
3: No, it's not cheaper. It's not cheaper and it's not more expensive. It it basically costs about the same if you do it properly. So the advantages, the key advantages, are in terms of the fact that it is a much better experience for patients. Now, let's come to your paper, um, which looked at things
0: like admission rates and bed usage rates in England, comparing areas that had a home treatment team with areas that didn't.
3: What did you find? Well... We set out to read what uh, epidemiologists like to call a natural experiment. Um, Crisis teams had been set up anecdotally by local enthusiasts in local areas up until the time of the National Service Framework. The National Service Framework, which was published in 1999, advocated this as an approach that should be being made available. And a year or so later, in in government policy, the government committed itself to providing uh, enough teams for there to be one in every locality throughout England. So over the course of the next uh, four years or so, the number of these built up very quickly from a very low base, where there were initially about, about 30 around the country, up until the situation where, by now, there are teams virtually everywhere. So that gave an opportunity for us to look at whether we could see the footprint of these new teams appearing in drops in the admission statistics all around the country as the teams appeared.
0: And what are your main findings in terms of the paper?
3: Well, the the key finding is that you can. If you look at areas where crisis teams were set up, there was quite a substantial difference in the trend of psychiatric admissions uh, in those places. Uh, What we were able to show, because we were able to look at a large number of areas uh, pretty much across the country, was that you could distinctly see a bigger fall where there was a crisis team than where there wasn't a crisis team. It's a bit more specific than that, because um, uh, we were able also to distinguish between crisis teams that were, in a sense, doing it more thoroughly. And uh, the marker we had for this was the question of whether the crisis teams were on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And some of them were, some of them weren't. At at each point in time, roughly half the teams uh, that we were able to see were declaring themselves as being on call 24-7. And there was a much, much more pronounced effect that those ones had on uh, uh, admissions. I I, I don't want to suggest, however, that it was specifically because those teams were there 24-7 that they were having a better effect on admissions. It could equally be that this was a marker for good leadership, good resources, and a range of other uh, advantages of that sort.
0: So although you did find a significant impact on admission rates, admission rates declined in areas that had a home treatment team, there's some possible other explanations other than just the effect of the home treatment team.
3: Well, I mean, what we're showing is a correlation. And if you're showing a correlation, that in itself doesn't prove any sort of causality. The, the, the best evidence, I think, is, is in the specific case of crisis teams that were definitely not there in the first time we did the mapping in 2001, and that definitely were there by the time we had 2002 mapping, um, and for which we've then got a further 18 months or so of uh, admission data. The beautiful thing about those is that you can see a turnaround in the trajectory of the admission rate in those areas, which is quite significantly distinct from other areas. And that's very powerful evidence that, if you like, that the the change happens at the right time. So that's that's quite a good marker of, of effectiveness. But, of course, it's always possible that there were other things happening. There's a number of other sorts of services that can be put in to try and uh, avert admission. So um, in some places they've uh, invented crisis houses. It's quite ambiguous whether you'd call being admitted to a crisis house an admission or not. So behind all the statistics, there is a human story. Um, Could you do a calculation of how
0: many people didn't get admitted to hospital as a result of uh, home treatment teams, maybe on an annual basis?
3: Yeah, we tried to look at this um, in, in, in terms of uh, the numbers of admissions that would have been prevented. Of course, it's much easier to count things that happen than things that, than things that don't happen. But our best estimate was that teams that are in place well uh, were reducing admissions in their area by about 20%. And, and on that basis, then we can say that the group of teams that, that were the best established, that were set up the the earliest and and in which we'd seen the largest amount of of fall, which by 2002 were covering about 12% of the population of of England. They admitted, in the last year we were able to study, a bit over 9,500 people. And so on that basis, my my best guess is that there would have been about 2,500 admissions that didn't happen because they were there. And that's an awful lot of admissions saved and an awful lot of people going through some very unpleasant experiences that didn't happen.
0: Professor Charles Glover, many thanks indeed. So thank you for listening to this month's uh, podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Uh, That's all we have for you this month. Please uh, tune in again next month where we'll be interviewing more researchers at the cutting edge of advances in psychiatry and psychology in terms of papers published in the British Journal of Psychiatry. And don't forget that we welcome your feedback on these podcasts and you can contact us via the Royal College of Psychiatrists website. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye.